I want to read now from the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 6. And I'm not going to stop at verse 8, which is where every public reading of Isaiah 6 that I have ever heard has stopped, which is a pity because it's right in the middle of the story. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, and each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphim to me, having in his hand a burning coal, which he had taken with tongues from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go, and say to this people, Hear and hear, but do not understand. See and see, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people fat, and their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste, without inhabitant, and houses without men, and the land is utterly desolate. And the Lord removes men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains standing when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. One thing to say to God here am I send me, it's quite another thing to be prepared to deliver the message that God sends you to give. We're going deeper and deeper into God on these Sunday mornings. Maybe you never thought quite like this about God. Maybe the whole fullness of the Godhead never quite struck you. I hope that by the time we finish the alphabet, you'll realize that God is so great now, we started very simply with ABC, and I said that God was our creator, our almighty and bountiful creator. But the Bible doesn't use those adjectives about him. The Bible says he is our holy creator. And then I went on to his deity and his eternity, those things which make him unlike us. And my text was this, I am God and not man, but I didn't give you the other half of the text. 
The other half is, I am God and not man, the Holy One of Israel. I told you last Sunday morning that God is our Father, and we rejoice in that. But when Jesus prayed to his own Father, he said, Holy Father. And when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we must always remember to include, Holy be your name, or as it's put in our English version, Hallowed be your name. And we must never forget that the word holy needs to be put in front of everything else you say about God. Even to say God is love is dangerous unless you add the adjective holy because there are so many unholy kinds of love around that we shall not get the right picture. So I'm taking the letter H but I'm also taking two more which are related to it and I want to speak this morning of God's holiness, his indignation and his judgment. This will be a fit preparation for next week when we look at the other side, his kindness, love and mercy. But let's look this morning at his holiness, his indignation and his judgment. A very serious subject. And I wouldn't choose it if the Bible hadn't commanded me to speak about such things. Not very nice or pleasant. And probably your temperament reacts as well. But it's true. Now let's take the word holy first. It's a word that is dropping right out of the English language. There are so very few, few things still regarded as holy that it's a word you will rarely hear. Even our holy days have become holidays and a slight switch in spelling has taken the holiness right out of them. Now this word holy is used in different senses. First of all, it's used as a swear word. It's used in a swearing context and swearing always takes something that is holy and treats it as profane and to be trampled upon. And therefore most swear words go straight back to either religion or sex. The two holiest relationships that we know, our relationship with God and our relationship between men and women. And therefore most swear words go back to that. I suppose one of the best known ones is simply a shortened version of By Our Lady, though not many people realize that, but it goes straight back to religion. And others have been ripped out of the Bible, damned and evacuated of their theological content, and that is a word in the Bible and a word that Christians can use. But it's been treated as profane and flippant. And likewise with the ho word holy, holy mackerel, holy smoke, Holy smoke is probably a phrase lifted straight out of Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy. And the house was filled with smoke. But we use it now as a swear word or as a slang phrase. Now there are others who use the word holy, not in a swearing sense, but in a sarcastic way. He's a holy Joe. Holier than thou attitudes. And they use it as an insult. And indeed if some people called me a holy Joe... I would feel insulted. I'd feel that I'd given the wrong impression or that they were saying something nasty about me. Isn't this a tragedy that this word which belongs to God and describes God should be used either in a swearing or in a sarcastic manner? More overseas than in England, the word holy is often used in a superstitious sense, meaning people, places or objects to be avoided because they are mysterious because they are uncanny and seem to be associated with supernatural power. Now that's beginning to get a little nearer. 
Then there are those who use the word holy simply to describe something sacred. Jacob at Bethel said this is a holy place. Or Moses, when he saw the bush, was told, take your shoes off, this is a holy place, meaning it is a sacred place. And a book was written by a German philosopher called Rudolf Otto, which has influenced very profoundly many theologians in this country. And he called the book The Idea of the Holy. And he coined a word, the sense of the numinous. And what he meant was a place or an object or a person who gives you a sense of don't touch, keep away. Well now that is a sacred use, but it's still not the scriptural use. The scriptural use of the word holy means far more than supernatural power. It means supernatural purity. Purity. It's the very character of God. And when you say God is holy, you mean God is cleaner than you can imagine. God is utterly, utterly pure. And this is something that we have never known, so it's so difficult for us to imagine it. I'm going to try and make this real for you this morning. May I begin by asking two very simple questions. First, what would it be like to meet a really holy person? Would you like them or dislike them? Would you feel drawn towards them or repelled by them? What would you really feel if you met a really holy person? Now maybe you never have done. Or maybe you feel you have done. But when Jesus was on earth for the first time in human history, a really holy person was living among men. And we can answer the question by asking, how did people feel about a holy person called Jesus? The answer is very simple. At first they were attracted. They came in their thousands. They loved him, they were drawn to him, they wanted to be with him. But very soon this gave way to a discomfort. They began to feel, when they got nearer to him, a little uncomfortable. They began to feel a little dirty. They began to feel a little sinful. Until they began to say this kind of thing, and one man who lived with him for about two years said this, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. In simple English, I am not for the likes of you. And the upshot of it was that within three years they hated him. Now that is how people react to a, a really holy person. At first they might feel drawn, then they feel uncomfortable and they finish up hating him. That happened to Jesus. His holiness had this effect. A really holy person does have this effect. That is why Jesus said they hated me and they will hate you. But the hate will be in inverse proportion to your holiness. Whoever would live a godly life in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, said Paul. And the hatefulness goes with the holiness, if it's the real thing. Santiago of Cassio once said this, He has a daily beauty in his life which makes me ugly. And nobody likes to feel ugly. One could alter that and say he's got a cleanliness about his life that makes me feel dirty. Nobody likes to feel dirty. He's got something in his life that makes me feel so different. Now when Isaiah the prophet went to church one Sabbath morning, he looked up and before the service began, when he was all alone in the temple, he was thinking about God and suddenly he said, Why, God is holy. Holy, holy, holy. 
Do you know what he said? He said, and I've been saying dirty things with my lips this week. And he said, I realize now that I never noticed it because everybody else at work was a man of unclean lips and I never knew it. I didn't realize that you can be a dirty person in what you say as well as in what you do. And suddenly he realized, holy, 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 woe is me, I'm lost, I'm undone. That wasn't the end of the story. God's holiness reached down and burnt it, cauterized it, and burnt it out of his life and said, now, you can be holy as I am holy. Now, the other question that might get us into the feeling of the word holy is this. What would a really holy person feel if they met me? Did that ever strike you? I've tried to answer the question, what would I feel if I met a really holy person? But what would that person feel if they met me and if they knew everything about me? Now, once again, it's so difficult to imagine because I've never been completely holy and so I don't know. We'll have to start with the Bible and ask how does God feel about me when he meets me and I find that in the Psalms in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah in every one of these books it says that when God meets man he's indignant that's why I use the letter I at this point when holiness meets something that is not holy indignation is the immediate result that's a biblical word now let me start with human examples. I'll start with a humorous one, but it'll begin. There was a man who had just finished cementing the drive to his garage, and he'd got it beautifully smooth, just finished when a boy ran right across it chasing a ball. And he caught the boy, and he boxed his ears soundly, and his wife saw him do this out of the window. And when he came in, she said, I thought you loved little boys. Well, he said, I love them in the abstract, but not in the concrete. <laughs> well, now, just start... Why was that man indignant? The reason was very simple. He'd made something that was nice. He'd made something that was complete. Something he could stand and look at with satisfaction. Something that was a good job. And if ever you've done a bit of cementing, you know the satisfaction that comes when you've got it smooth and can stand back and look. Why was he indignant? Because somebody thoughtlessly, carelessly spoiled it. And those footprints would stay there, probably, and spoil his work. That's what indignation is. They put up a very beautiful statue in Kiel University recently, just before I visited the students there. And when I got there, the statue was daubed with paint, and other things had been stuck onto it, and the whole thing was spoiled. And the authorities were highly indignant, rightly so. There is a little chapel in Beaconsfield that I know, a little Methodist chapel, where one Sunday morning they arrived to worship God in the beauty of holiness, and they found that the chairs had been smashed and put on a bonfire inside the building. They found the hymn books had been torn up. They found that everything had been wrecked, every window smashed, the carpets torn up, the whole place ruined. Indignation comes in at that point. I think some of you are old enough to remember the great preacher F.W. Robertson of Brighton. One day, F.W. Robertson was walking down the street in Brighton and he came face to face with a young man who had blasted the purity of one of the young girls in his church. And when F.W. Robertson saw that young man, he bit his lip in his anger until it bled. That's indignation. 
It was the kind of holy indignation that Shaftesbury had when he saw the children slaving in the factories. It is a holy thing. And it's because we are not more holy that we don't have more indignation. Righteous indignation. And if I could give you one more example, a divine example. Do you remember when Jesus got angry? Do you remember when he whipped men? Do you remember when he said, you've ruined my temple, this is the house of prayer. And you've made it into a stock exchange. You've ruined it. And he whipped them out of the temple. Indignation. Now let's go back to the beginning. God made a world. We're going to look at that tonight. And he fashioned it with his hands and he completed it. And then he looked at it and he said, that's good. And he put trees and flowers in it and animals and birds and fish. And he said, that's good. And he put men in it and completed his work and said, that's very good. Now stay that way. And chapter 2 of Genesis says, stay that way. Don't let the knowledge of evil spoil this. Stay that way. Keep it nice. Keep it clean. Keep it happy. And you know what happened. And God looks down at a world that left his hands a very good world. And it's not a very good world. It's not a world in which you love your children to grow up. I tremble for my children. They're just getting on the verge of teenage years. They're going to realize what kind of a world they really live in. Oh, I'd have chosen a different world to bring my children up in if I could, wouldn't you? It's not a good world. But you realize what God feels when he looks down. He's indignant, of course he is. I made it beautiful and you've ruined it. I left it very good and look what you've done with your suspicion and your hatred and your gossip and your cruelty. Look at it. We are vandals in God's universe. And until we've realized that every one of us we shall never begin to be holy. Because I have added my share to the world's problems. I haven't reduced them. I have added my share of self-centeredness and temper and impatience, and so have you. Well, now, no wonder is God is indignant. He's described by one prophet as the God who is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. He can't bear to look at it. I don't know if you've ever felt as holy as that. It's a rare human experience, but God is like that the whole time. Therefore I come to the question which Nahum asks, who can stand before his indignation? Who can face an angry God? What is this anger going to result in? The answer is, and I come to my third letter, it must result in judgment. A holy God who's indignant must go on to judgment. And here I must take this very serious theme which runs right through the scriptures from beginning to end. And against this backcloth come next week to the glorious news that he's kind, loving and merciful. But you'll never understand his sheer kindness unless you've understand, understood that God is the judge of all the earth. Now how do we know he's judged? The answer is very simple, because of what he's done in the past, because of what he's doing now, and because of what he's going to do in the future. I don't like speaking about this, I don't like preaching about it, I'm not the kind of hellfire George who loves to dangle people over the pit. But it's there. It's there. And if I'm to be true to him and face him one day as a preacher, I must speak of these things. Take the past. The historical records of the Old Testament contain some remarkable examples 
of the moments when God's indignation reached boiling point and boiled over. Sodom and Gomorrah and the two neighboring towns, there is nothing left of them but a graveyard, and they now belong to the Palestine Potash Company with headquarters in Palmau. But there's not a man living there and not a woman. Why? Why the very word sodomy, look it up in your English dictionary and you'll find out why. Because God reached the point where his indignation was such that he said, I must judge this, these cities, four of them. And they've gone all together. So has Jericho. It's a ruin. There's nobody living in Jericho today. There's a town of that name, but it's a mile and a half away. It's a different place. Jericho's gone. Babylon is gone and God said nobody will ever live in you again. And you know that even today, Arab carriers will not stay within the walls of Babylon or Nineveh at night for fear of the jinn, the evil spirits, so that no man even sleeps in Babylon or Nineveh today. Tyre has gone. These were individual towns that so offended God's holiness that his indignation spilled over in judgment. There was once a whole society which suffered the same thing. The days of Noah, we'll be treating that on Sunday evening, but here was a society living purely at the physical level. They never got above it. They, they ate, they drank, and they married. They lived to satisfy only their physical desires. That is the level at which God's indignation bubbled over. He said, you're not living for the things that I meant you to live for. And therefore, the immediate result was violence filled the earth. Now, this is as up-to-date as tomorrow morning's newspaper, isn't it? Is this out of date, that when people live for material things alone and physical things alone, that violence will fill the earth? This is today, but Noah's society was completely obliterated, except for eight people. There were individuals like the man Achan and like the woman Jezebel, but the Bible is full of enough examples to tell you that there comes a point where God's indignation boils over into judgment. That's the past. Now what about the present? Can we discern his judgments today? Yes. Not at an individual level, but at a social level, yes. Read Romans 1, and it reads like the news of the world. And Romans 1 says this, when men give God up, God gives men up. And the immediate result, perverted minds and perverted bodies, unnatural relationships between men and men and women and women. And if you read Romans 1, you'll find that this is precisely what is happening in our day. I challenge you to go home and study it. God's judgments are in the earth today. And without being alarmist or exaggerating, I do believe our nation is under the judgment of God when read in the light of Romans 1. His indignation reaches a certain point. And when we consider the opportunities that this nation of ours has had, we do not deserve anything less. An Indian student came to Britain, and the missionary who had led him to the Lord trembled, wondering what the Indian would feel like when he saw Britain as it really is. But the Indian came back to India and the missionary said, well, what did you think of England? And he said, marvelous. He said, within, within the first quarter of an hour in London, I saw three miracles. The missionary said, tell me more. And the Indian said, well, I got on a bus. And he said, I sat down and downstairs, the man taking the money was upstairs, and my next door passenger got up to leave and said, here is my money, would you give it to the conductor? 
Miracle number one. Sorry, he didn't give it to the Indian. He gave it to another passenger and said to another passenger, will you give this money to the conductor? And the Indian watched and said, miracle number one. Miracle number two, when the conductor came downstairs, the other passenger gave him the money. Miracle number three, the conductor didn't put it in his pocket but in his bag and took a ticket out and put it in the used ticket. And the Indian said three miracles within the first quarter of an hour in London. He said, I would never have seen any of those three in India. But my friends, that story is 40 years old. It happened 40 years ago. Would he see three miracles in London today? When the Reader's Digest can say that the national pastime in England is petty pilfering. When the railways must allow thousands upon thousands upon thousands of pounds for pilfered towels, soap and fittings and what have you. When in every factory people are making foreigners as well as the things for their boss. If you don't know what foreigner is, I'll explain to you afterwards. Now this is our situation and God's indignation must be very rife against the nation that thinks more of bingo than the Bible. We must recognize this. Let me turn to the future. Paul said when he stood on Mars Hill, the Areopagus, he said, God has appointed a day when he will judge the world. There's a day coming when all vandals will be dealt with by God. There's a day coming when every secret will be revealed. A day coming when all we've done and all we've said must be faced. This will be the final and most searching day of all. Anne of Austria once said to Richelieu, God does not pay at the end of every day, my Lord Cardinal, but at the end he pays. God does not pay at the end of every day, my Lord Cardinal, but at the end he pays. I must close, but somebody might well say to me, is this the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Is this the God that Jesus believed in? My answer is yes it is. And I give you five reasons why I believe this is the God of Jesus. There has been a false dichotomy produced over the last 40 years between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New. As if they are different gods. And somebody asked me, a minister of the church asked me a fortnight ago, do you believe everything the Bible says about God? And when I said yes, he looked at me as if I'd crawled out of the ark. I do. And I believe that everything I have been saying this morning, Jesus believed. Let me tell you why, and with this I close. And against this backcloth, come next Sunday morning to hear the other side. First of all, Jesus had a Bible. And his Bible was the Old Testament. He had no other, for the New was not written. That was the Bible in which he was brought up, and that is the Bible to which he set his seal, and it is the Bible from which he quoted, and that Bible, the Old Testament, taught the God that I've been teaching you this morning. Reason number two. Within the New Testament itself, you have the clearest possible picture of a God who is holy and indignant and judging in the last book in the New Testament, the book of Revelation, which is a book written by Jesus. It claims to be the word of Jesus, the risen, ascended Jesus speaking to the church. And that's the God he portrays there. Reason number three. In the epistles of the New Testament, 
Paul talks of the day of wrath when God will judge the secrets of men according to my gospel. And there is no other gospel. This is the good news. It must be bad news before it's good news. Fourth reason, in Matthew, Mark and Luke, Jesus himself quotes as historical events the judgments on Noah, the judgments on Sodom and Gomorrah, the judgment on Nineveh. Therefore we must take them seriously. And the fifth and final reason is simply that Jesus himself in his own words, spoke of this kind of God. I want to read you some words of Jesus, just three verses. Listen to this. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Those are the words of Jesus. This is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But, oh, I wish I could go on and preach another hour now. I don't want to stop there. I don't want to stop with his judgment. There is a way out. There is a way to meet a holy God. There is a way of forgiveness. There is a way of becoming holy as he is holy. There is a way for men to rise. There is a way. And the God who is holy, the God who is indignant when he meets anything that is not holy, and the God who must judge the vandals of his universe who have ruined what he made, that God is kind and loving and merciful and does not take any pleasure at all in the death of the wicked. He's too holy to do that. And he's provided Jesus Christ. It is of thy mercies, says the book of Lamentations, that we are not consumed. Your mercies which are new every morning. It's because of that that we dare to come and take this bread and this wine. And remember that mercy has triumphed over wrath. And that the judgment which was due to every one of us has been turned away and put upon Jesus Christ. And that he has faced that indignation and that holiness for us and made possible the forgiveness that makes us new creatures. Will you stay if you love the Lord Jesus? Take this bread and this wine to remind you of God's holiness, his indignation and his judgment, which are as clearly seen in the cross as his kindness, his love, and his mercy. Let us pray. Oh God, we've been very serious this morning, but in your holy presence we know we ought to be. And yet we rejoice that this is not the last word. We pray that we may come to this table and take this holy sacrament to our comfort. For the sake of Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. Amen.